I'd rather spend time putting energy into being who I am, proudly being who I am, and letting other people see that it is possible to have someone like me exist and actually enjoy life. I can be in the room, I can contribute, and no one's gonna die. In fact, some people might feel even better, and it's okay, you know? It's gonna be okay. (laughs) Welcome to Perennials, a podcast about growing up, getting wise, and trying to live a good life. I'm Victoria Russell. In Walt Whitman's poem, Song of Myself, he writes, Do I contradict myself? Very well, then. I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. Today's guest knows a thing or two about containing multitudes. She was a kid who loved wrestling and dancing. She was a minister's daughter and a punk rocker. She's an Afro-Latina who loves sci-fi. She's a tattooed professor poet activist. (laughs) Dr. Griselle Acosta is an associate professor at the City University of New York, Bronx Community College, and the editor of Latina Outsiders Remaking Latina Identity, published this year by Rutledge. Griselle has scholarly and creative work in many publications, including The Lauren Hill Reader, American Studies Journal, The Handbook on Latinos and Education, and the forthcoming sci-fi anthology, The Latinx Archive. In our conversation, Griselle explains that, as a woman of color, her very existence and presence is sometimes offensive to people. The fact that she exists and can't be neatly slipped into a stereotypical category is confusing and even upsetting to some. So Griselle knows a thing or two about sticking to her guns and being true to herself. She's a strong, sensitive, fighter, lover, artist, activist, and I loved getting to know her better and hearing about her inspiring parents, her childhood and teen years in Chicago, and her passion for promoting Latina intellectuals. If you're someone like me who has struggled with trusting yourself and speaking up, I think this conversation will really inspire you to take a chance and be a little more seen, a little more heard, and a little more true. And if it does inspire you, let me know. Send me an email to perennialspodcast at gmail.com or message me on Instagram at perennialspodcast. Enjoy the episode. Griselle, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Victoria. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm great. I'm so happy to be on Perennials. I would love to talk a little bit about your parents and your family growing up. I know that your dad passed recently, and I'm so sorry about Mm -hmm. that. Every time I've heard you talk about him, it's so clear just like how much you love him and how much love he has for you. and, And he just sounded like such an incredible man. So I would love to hear a bit about your parents' story. And I'm sure that could be like a whole episode unto itself. (laughs) Um, Yes, it really could. (laughs) So I was thinking maybe you could talk a bit about in terms of your childhood and kind of what you saw, what impacted you the most from your parents? Yeah, what were some of the biggest kind of lessons that you took from from them? Yeah, um, well, I I literally just got back um, last week from Chicago where we had a second memorial service for my dad. Um, because, uh, for, for people who don't know who are listening, um, he passed away in April, late April. And then we had a very small memorial service here in New Jersey where I was caring for him. Um, he had Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and, um, 
I've been caring for him and my mom, both in my home and then at, at the nursing home where he eventually ended up uh, for the past four years here in the New Jersey area. So, um, so most of our friends and family are in the Chicago area. So we had a second memorial service there. So all of this is really kind of uh, really at the front of my mind right now. Um, my parents, my mom is still alive. She's still in Chicago. Um, she's visiting with family there a little bit longer, which is great for her because uh, she really needed that. Um, my parents are incredible people. So my dad grew up um, in Barranquilla, Colombia, and um, he he lost his father when he was about seven years old. My grandmother was widowed um, because my grandfather had tuberculosis and uh, she had to raise um, four children. She was an incredible woman. Her name was Justicia and she had a great impact on my dad. She did not have a lot of education, but she was very, very wise and strong. And um, she raised these four kids to be incredible, uh, strong human beings with families of their own. And the only way that she kind of survived li living in such a poor uh, situation without her husband, um, with four young children, is that she dedicated herself to the church. And she literally told my dad that he was going to live a life in the church, which he was not wow. happy about. Yeah, he was not happy about that as a teenager. <laughs> But the truth is, is that there was something special about him that it's really kind of like this profession chose him. So anyway, he, he went to seminary in, in Cuba, in Matanzas, Cuba, which is a wonderful arts uh, city with lots of music and theater and dance and visual art. Um, the museums there are excellent. And that's where he met my mom. So it was a really romantic spot for them to meet the the seminary was on top of a hill overlooking the caribbean sea and it's just absolutely stunning place so um they met uh through a mutual friend and they were both intellectuals they loved to read they loved to discuss uh pretty much anything under the sun that that had to do with philosophy and way of life so of course they married um they moved back to Barranquilla, where my dad's family was, um, and that's where my two brothers were born. Uh, I should mention that my mom's family, except for her mother, her family did not go to the wedding because they felt that my dad was uh, too black, muy negro. So, uh, so that was a problem right there. But Anyway, eventually my dad wanted to further his education and through his ties through the seminary, he was able to go to Princeton University um, and uh, eventually he was given a church in Chicago and he became an incredible community leader in the Logan Square neighborhood. And my mom was an accountant for the Community Renewal Society, which to this day still houses the Chicago Reporter, which is an excellent uh, publication that researches issues on race and poverty. So my two parents were activists. Um, my dad was furthered his education more through Loyola University, uh, the Chicago um, Theological Seminary, which is part of the University of Chicago, 
education and um, activism and uh, fighting the good fight, that was just the norm in my household. Um, but my mom was very kind of different than my dad. My dad was like the kind of person that woke up in the morning um, and was super happy, whist whistling a happy tune, and I'm not exaggerating when I say <laughs> that. Um, and my mom was the type of person that liked to sleep late. She liked to listen to music all the time. Everyone in the household had their own record player. And uh, she liked to take us to museums and theater um, and that sort of thing. So I had this kind of contrast, uh, whereas my dad was kind of a straightforward, down-to-earth let's help the community in, in a lot of different ways. He brought extensions of colleges to the church that he worked in first Spanish United church of Christ. And later on Ravenswood Pres Presbyterian. Um, he had a preschool at the church. Um, he had, he participated, he had the church participate in festivals every summer. It was really great. Um, so he was like community oriented, whereas my mom was kind of an introvert mm. and kind of, artistically minded, even though she was not an artist herself. So I had those two influences and it was interesting. I mean, I think that I was not necessarily understood when I was growing up because while I definitely had the heart that my parents gave me, you know, this heart that, that wanted to help people and really thought about what was right and wrong and wanted to make sure that those things were supported in the world, like the good things were supported in the world, things that, that helped people. Um, I was much more arty, like, like than even my mom was, I was a painter, I was a writer. And I don't think that my parents really understood that. And in fact, even through adulthood, they understood that I became a professor, but they, they did, did not understand the poetry and stuff. So that mm. was a little bit difficult. So it was great <laughs> in so many ways, but it was really a little bit challenging in other ways. But honestly, the, the, the gifts were much, much more important than any of the challenges. It's what made me who I am. Yeah, it's making me think about the piece that you have called, I think, Punk Birth Fragments. Is that the title? Um, yeah, Hardcore yeah. Punk Birth Fragments. Yeah, I love that. Piece. It gives these snapshots of your early life, and um, and it it is interesting because I can feel in that piece that there is this undercurrent of not quite being understood, even by your parents who clearly loved you so much, um, mm -hmm. and it definitely sticks out that you had this, you were this fighter and this tough kid from the get go. Um, and I'm wondering, like, where do you think that you got that strength from just to be yourself, even, even when you felt misunderstood? Because it seems like in the piece you kind of, you talk about being a little girl who is not acquiescing to the cultural and societal messages about what mm. a little girl should be. Like you talk about wrestling with your brothers and watching Twin Peaks and having these kind of gory Halloween costumes and you kind of 
touch upon your dad not quite understanding why you want to wear this like you know this scary costume and um yeah I'm wondering like where you got the strength from and if it was what it was like to to feel like misunderstood in that way well the truth is is that both my parents in their own ways they actually showed me um how to stay true to my vision um because they always did that in their own lives so there's one story that i like to tell where um you know folks in in the church and i grew up in the church my dad was a minister and he was a therapist he had a counseling center in logan square um where he charged people practically nothing even though his colleagues were charging like a hundred dollars an hour in other spaces um he uh the story I like to tell is actually about my mom and she, she would talk about, um, how in the church, a lot of times people had ideas and they weren't always great. So there was a particular young woman who had joined the church and she, she liked to wear this really bright blue eyeshadow. <laughs> and yeah. So when the other ladies of the church saw this, well, they, you know, they, they had to chat about it because, oh, it's it was something new and, and something to talk about. And, and obviously they had their opinions about this eyeshadow and, and not all of them were good. And my mom was so annoyed with the gossiping that um, the next time that she showed up at church, she had the same <laughs> very, very bright blue eyeshadow. So now that the minister's wife was wearing it, they couldn't say anything. Um, and, and she, she, you know, she really, I, that happened when I, when I was very young. So that was just a story that she would tell me. So I think that she was trying to teach me something by, by sharing that story, mm. um, which it stuck, you know, because I, I definitely, uh, took that stance when, when I felt that people were judging others without reason, um, or judging me without reason. I was like, wait a minute. I, you know, I, I can wear what I want or I don't need to be judged by, um, the price of my shoes or something like that, which is something that, that, well, at least at the high school that I went to, which was Kenwood Academy in Hyde Park. Um, there were some folks who, who would judge you based on your leather purse or something like that, which I thought was really dumb. So, so I just wasn't afraid to, to have a more open mind and not be classist in that way or not be um, prudish by judging people, you know, what they were wearing and, and you know, maybe slut shaming someone by assuming that they were a certain way if they had bright blue eyeshadow on. Like that, that wasn't something that my parents um, encouraged, although my dad had a harder time with some of that. Mm. Um, which I think it would be harder for a minister because you do have to kind of make certain judgments as to what's right and wrong. And then sometimes that can, that can catch up to you and, and make things a little bit difficult when you, when you also want to be very accepting of everyone. So, so he had a harder time with that. I think when I started wearing my punk makeup, my dad said some pretty harsh things at certain times, mm. which did not make me happy. But I, I, I guess, I don't know, there was something that allowed me to keep doing what I thought was right for me. 
I think that part of that came from my mom, but I have to say, you know, my dad didn't back down when people were racist towards the Latino community. He didn't back down when, you know, sometimes there were gangs in the area. This is older Logan Square when before gentrification and there weren't a lot of gangs. I I'd never, ever felt threatened in the neighborhood, but sometimes there would be some kid that would, you know, try to maybe break into the church or something to steal what little we had there, which was nothing. Um, and my dad always, you know, he hears someone, you know, someone would call him at home and, and they tell him what was going on and he'd go over there, not afraid at all, not with a baseball mm-hmm. bat, not with any kind of weapon. And he'd just go and, and he would just talk to the kids, you know, and be like, Hey, this is a church, man. This is, this, we don't have anything for you here. If you want, come on Sunday and we'll feed you. You know, <laughs> so, so he never had any fear, um, of kind of standing up for what he felt was right. So I think I really learned that from both mm-hmm. of them. Yeah. Was it ever difficult for you to be a minister's daughter? Like, did you, <laughs> <laughs> did you feel, were you ever like annoyed by certain obligations or did you feel like you were expected to behave in certain ways? Yeah, absolutely. There was a lot, there were a lot of expectations from the congregation, but I never met any of them. Um, I really didn't. I I, uh, I think that everyone thought that I was a certain way as a little girl because they didn't quite it didn't quite click with them who I was becoming at a young age because they just don't see it. They just kind of see you as a little girl. But as I became a teenager and as I got older. Um, it was quite clear. I mean, I was wearing my hair spiked to church and um, I was literally the only punk rocker in Logan Square. I would I'd like to say that I was the first Latina punker in Logan Square. I don't know if there were any <laughs> subsequent ones, but but I certainly didn't know of any others in Logan Square. Um, and, uh, you know, they talked. They for sure talked about it. Um, but they didn't say anything to my face and they certainly didn't say anything to my parents. I think that the congregation probably thought that, you know, I was going to end up nowhere. Um, they probably had a lot of harsh judgments and that was probably difficult for my parents. It was less difficult for me. What was most difficult for me was that I really loved dancing and every Saturday there was um, this underground club that was literally run by teenagers. One of them is still DJing in the Chicago mm-hmm. area, DJ Jesse De La Pena. Um, this place was called Club Naked. So that the name right there was probably enough to scare a lot of adults, but it was really just an artist community. Um, the kids, we, they all had murals and paintings up on the walls. Um, they were learning to DJ during the 1980s. Uh, which was the height of the house movement and really the birth of the DJ movement, like the late seventies, early eighties. And um, it was just a bunch of arty kids. And I love to dance. I, I literally found my center on the dance floor when everything else was chaotic. If I could dance, then all of that went away. It was really great. So the hardest thing for me was, I wanted to dance every weekend and you know, the, the club started at 10 PM and went until like four or 5 AM and I had to be at church 
at like 9 a.m. <laughs> so that was really difficult. And the majority of the time, my parents did not want to let me do that. I had to beg and beg and beg every time. Um, that was very painful for me because it was really where I belonged at the time. But but I, I think I got a lot of Saturdays in, so so I'm, I'm happy <laughs> about it. There's actually a book out that quotes an essay I wrote about it. Um, it's called, um, it's from Oxford University Press, and it's called Do You Remember House? And it, it focuses on the queer house movements in Chicago. Um, so I'm very, very proud that my, uh, my essay is quoted in that book. So I just had to put that out there. Yeah, I will definitely link to it on the show notes page. So they knew that you were going to dance. You weren't like sneaking out. No, I don't think I snuck out often for that. They usually knew because I, I needed to get rides and stuff and yeah. coordinate all of that. And usually I went with my, my oldest friend, Nancy, and her sister, Norma. Norma was the one who drove. I think that there might have been like one time here or there where, you know, I said I was staying at someone's house and I was going to club naked. But that it didn't need to happen that often because mm-hmm. usually they, they knew and, and they trusted uh, when I went out with Nancy and Norma. So my parents were, you know, they were very accommodating, not like other Latino parents. They were much more accommodating in a lot of ways, even though they had difficulty with it. Yeah. I'm really intrigued by what you said about finding your center on the dance floor, Um, particularly because I'm thinking about how when I started going to like middle school dances, literally as an 11 year old, I feel like the music that they were playing at that point already and the way that kids were dancing was already like super hyper sexualized. Um, in middle school, like I just when I when I look back on the songs that they were playing and the lyrics in those songs that were just like <laughs> for eleven year old kids to be listening yeah. and grinding on the dance floor, like it. Looking back, I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> um, and to me, it was like I love dancing too, but there was such a male gaze from the get go. Uh, yeah, yeah, I get it. You yeah. know what I mean? Like right from age 11, you know. Um, so I I would love to hear more about that idea of finding your center on the dance floor. And um, it just sounds like you were you were embodied there and that that was important. So, yeah. Could you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, I think um, there was something exceptional about... Um, club naked as opposed to some of the other clubs like um well there were a few things so first of all it was a space where it was welcoming to all gender identities and sexualities so um you know if you were a woman on the dance floor people did not necessarily assume that you wanted male attention um so there was that but you know, house music, especially early house, it is very sexualized. Like, Time to Jack, which is, you know, one of the more uh, famous phrases from a famous house song, um, it, it's it's referencing sex overtly. Um, and we were dancing to that as early as, as you know, age 12, 11, in, in this other club called uh, The Rainbow, which was... Um, it was also on the north side, but it was more 
it was definitely more soul and house or whatever. Um, so there was a level of, you know, you, you probably had to fend off some people at times. Um, however, what happened at Club Naked was a little bit different in that they mixed what was going on on the dance floor with house and punk. Mm. So there were a lot of us women who were very, very empowered. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we would be out on the dance floor slamming like as hard as anyone else, uh, you know, slam dancing during punk songs. So I think that because people saw us in that mode as well, no one assumed that they could just go up to you and start grinding on you. Like people would carefully come up to you and start. And then if you, or they might start that, or they might do more artistic dance. There was a lot of artistic dance. Um, but anyway, if somebody came up to you and you did not want them there and you turned around and, and gave them a look, they left. Yeah. <laughs> like it was, it was, I, I don't know. Um, if the if honestly this is something that I should thank the the organizers, it was the the Abshire and Malgen family in Chicago, which uh, they're they they are an artistic family in Chicago that reside in Pilsen, and that's where the the location of the the club was. But um, for some reason, they really did uh, create an atmosphere where um, I don't know. I, I for, as far as I remember. All the women felt safe there. Um, they they actually made sure that there weren't people um, that were much much older than us either, mm. because there were a lot of underage kids there. Yeah, you know, they were like 15, 16, um, and so forth. So they really didn't like anyone to be there who was like who, who were any person who was like um, twenty three or twenty four. Like they th they thought they were getting into dangerous territory there. So they would make sure that it was really like just us kids. So we, we felt fairly safe. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm so intrigued by how did you find your way to punk music? To tell you the truth, my house had a lot of different music right off the bat. Um, like I said, everyone had their own stereo. My aunt who lived with us had her own stereo. I had mine. Each of my brothers had theirs and my parents had one. Um, so we were all listening to different music in our own respective rooms. And, um, I would say that it was probably my brother, Carlos, who kind of had an ear for some new wave. So he had like things like Devo and the B-52s in the house. So I think that that was probably the entryway. Um, but I also became friends through like a summer camp that's uh, called Tower Hill. It's actually owned by the UCC, which is the United Church of Christ. Um, I became friends with friends from uh, summer camp who were from the suburbs. And there's one particular friend I had who, um, she was just kind of into different music and, and kind of let me know about it. And the truth is a lot of it I had already kind of heard of because I was such a house head. So I had heard of Yaz, which is considered new wave. And that was something that was already being played in Logan Square. And then I heard of Art of Noise. And that was actually considered um, in Chicago, something that you could play for house or for breaking. Um, 
but then there was this European connection. So, so I was kind of going to these DJ shops, right. And they would have a mix of these records. They'd have like some punk EPs that had like maybe a track that was remixed for, for like a house mix. And, you know, through my friends in the suburbs, I was getting maybe some other stuff like, uh, PIL and, um, Susie and the Banshees. And I just started to kind of find out about the places to get this music. So Chicago notoriously had, um, Wax Tracks Records, which produced a lot of the kind of industrial punk music at the time, Ministry and Front 242. So I was going there and just getting a lot of information about punk. And, you know, I I quickly picked up um, records by the Dead Kennedys and the Misfits. And, you know, these were the days where you just went into the record store and if a record looked cool, you just bought it. Um, You didn't know what was on it. So luckily, I I, I was able to pick a lot of really great records. What was it about that music that you think you were connecting with? Um, Well, first of all, I loved how it sounded different from everything that was on the radio. And I I was already inclined that way. I grew up watching a lot of experimental film on PBS. There was a show in Chicago called Image Union, and they would have some interesting stuff on there that sometimes referenced uh, experimental music. Um, I also watched a show that was on PBS called Wild Chicago, and they explored different places in Chicago that had different kinds of music going on in the art, you know, different art. Um, And then there was also a show on USA Network on cable, I want to say, way back when that was called Night Flight. And there they had a lot of of experimental film and, 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 and music. And it was, I was just inclined that way. I'd been exposed to so many different kinds of music as a child. Um, you know, Barry Manilow, Leontine Price, um, Bach. I mean, like just kind of everything was in my household. So I, I was always looking for new sounds. I mean, Herbie Hancock. Um, so, that artistic inclination that I had to just be very, very curious and explore and always want to hear new things and see new things that, I mean, I was an explorer, you know, I loved going to different, different places in Chicago and just finding something new. It really meant, uh, it opened up the world to me. It, it made me, um, it made me see things in a, in a, uh, I don't know, a wider scale than, than, than if I just stayed at home. I had friends, other Latinas who they were not allowed to leave the house. You know, they, they were literally told you're not leaving the house till you're 18. And, and they had a very, very narrow view of what was possible for them. It often involved getting married so that they could escape their house. And I didn't want that. I wanted something different. I wanted I wanted exploration. I wanted knowledge. I wanted to eat from the tree of knowledge and grab the snake, kill it. (laughs) I love that. To be biblical about it. (laughs) 
It sounds like Chicago must have been a really amazing place for you to grow up. Um, just having access to like all those different shops and things like that where you could go and get your hands on these things and go to those clubs and things like that. Yeah, it was great at the time. I mean, the truth is, you know, I'd go to some of these shops and oftentimes I couldn't afford anything in them, but I could at least look at the stuff and every now and then I'd save up. A lot of times I didn't eat my lunch and I just saved my lunch money and, and bought a record. Um, but uh, it was absolutely amazing. It it was painful to leave Chicago. I didn't want to leave Chicago. Um, and I miss Chicago every day. It's very different now than it was. It's not the same city that I grew up in. But I, I miss the Chicago that I grew up mm. in. It was magical. It was everything for me. So you were very involved with, you were saying, house music, punk music, like those scenes, those clubs. And you painted and you wrote and you said you liked sci-fi right um yes and like a lot of these scenes these kind of like niche scenes are often coded as white and male right <laughs> like in the yeah, dominant yeah, yeah, culture sure um what was that like being in those spaces yeah i think that if if you look up the 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 original film that the afropunk movement is based on which is the Afropunk film, um, it really explains what it's like to be a person of color in the punk movement. I mean, oftentimes we're literally the only person in the room. That doesn't really play out so much nowadays, but back then there were oftentimes where I was the only one in the room. Um, and it didn't happen as often in the city. If I was in Chicago, I mean, it was my scene. I did not feel strange about it at all um but it definitely played out that way in the suburbs and what i learned quickly was that some suburban punks were just as fascist as the fascism that they were supposedly railing against yeah. um they they could definitely exhibit racism sexism um well sexism was everywhere uh and that was just something that i had come to accept um, not, not accept happily, but just know, okay, people are going to act that way. I'm still going to be who I am. That's the way that I saw it. Um, but it was a great source of frustration for me. It, uh, I was quite angry about it. I found myself reading, um, books by Susan Faludi, you know, Backlash and, um, Bell Hooks, uh, you know, Gloria Steinem articles. Um, I just, once I started getting educated in college, uh, I started finding words for everything that I was just so angry about. I, um, you know, there was literally a culture, even at times in the punk scene where, where women in the room weren't supposed to talk. Like they weren't supposed to say what they felt about anything because it was the men in the room who talked and they were the ones who understood the world and women didn't have anything to contribute. And, you know, I thought that that was BS. I didn't like it at all. And I often said what I wanted to anyway. And I was literally labeled um, a bitch because of that. And, you know, when I moved to New York and I, I told people who I knew that that's kind of the rep that I had back in Chicago 
they were like, what? You're like the sweetest person we <laughs> ever met. What are you talking about? And I'm like, you don't understand in other places, um, women are not as empowered uh, as as in certain spaces in, in major cities, even in Chicago, Chicago still has a huge Midwestern influence. And there's this idea that, that, you know, you're only supposed to go so far and you're not supposed to talk about politics and you're not supposed to talk about inequity. And if you do, it's, it's impolite conversation. And, and women are not supposed to be impolite. (laughs) Right. Right. And, and I just, I just thought it was ridiculous. I thought it was just a way of silencing people. I didn't like it. Um, so I suffered a great deal. And the truth is, for all that I miss Chicago, I don't miss that at all. I feel so much more at home on the East Coast because here, I mean, not in every space, but in more spaces, I am allowed to be who I am. Mm. So I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's so amazing how women who are just, like, honest are labeled as being bitches. <laughs> like, yeah, it's often just a woman who's being honest <laughs> and, you know, who stands up for herself or stands up for other people or um, doesn't just do and say whatever is most pleasing and comfortable for everyone around her, particularly the men around her. And that's still something that I struggle with. Like, I definitely, definitely grew up with that ingrained in me that it's my job to just be very pleasing and make everyone comfortable and be very polite and, you know, and um, I give you credit for sticking to your guns because it's hard when people are judging you like that or labeling you like that. And it's so unfair. Yeah, I've come to understand that as a woman of color, um, some people are going to be offended just by the fact that I exist. Mm, yeah. Um, the fact that I'm even in the room, uh, they're going to take offense to that. So I've made my peace. Well, not completely, but I've, I've, I've made my peace with the fact that that dynamic exists right now. And I don't necessarily want to spend too much time just getting upset over it. Instead, I'd rather spend time <clears throat> putting energy into being who I am, proudly being who I am, and and letting other people see that it is possible to have someone like me exist and actually enjoy life, right? Like. I can be in the room, I can contribute, and and no one's going to die. In fact, some people might feel even better and and might enjoy a laugh or two. Um, And it's okay, you know? It's going to be okay. (laughs) But, you know, some people you can't can't convince of that. They they have, I don't know what, they have something in them that, that makes them really, really afraid of someone who has had a different experience. I think that what frightens people most about me is that they can't pinpoint my experience because I can make references to all the cultural touchstones that they have in their life, plus all these other ones that they've never thought about. Yeah. So I think that, that really freaks some people out. And I also think that people get freaked out by the fact that 
I can look very, very femme, but my attitude, I think maybe because I grew up with two brothers or maybe because I grew up with a father who was always kind of uh, making sure that I was empowered in some way, a mother and father, I should say, not just my dad. Um, I think that even though my appearance may be femme at times, um, the way in which I actually behave around people, the way that I move is not necessarily that way. So I, I think that gender wise, people don't, don't understand what I'm putting out there and they get, they get very nervous around me because of that. I've sensed that. And, you know, you just have to keep showing people that you're a good person and that you're not out to get them, that you're not out to change who they are. Um, and hopefully they, they get comfortable with you. And if they don't, oh, well. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'm still here. <laughs> yeah. How does all of this come up in academia? Because you are a professor um, and you wrote a piece for, is it Vida? Uh, yes. Called The Invisible Latina Intellectual. And you talk about, um, well, I mean, the, the title is pretty self-explanatory, but you say, you know, that, that Latina intellectuals are not promoted, really. Um, that image of the Latina intellectual is not promoted around the world. And, and part of what you talk about in that piece is that people just want Latinas in this case to be one way, like feminine, um, sexually attractive. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and you kind of say like, yeah, we can be those things and we're not limited to those things. We can also, we can also be, and we are multifaceted intellectuals. We've, we've been, uh, intellectuals for a very long time it's just that a lot of uh a lot of us do not promote the latinas out there who who have done that work so um you know uh we have uh levens morales and um we have norma cantu and we have uh gloria Saldua and we have shiri moraga and um oh there's this new one that Actually, one of my students uh, was kind of talking about, I'm going to forget the author's name, but the book is Mujerista Theology. That's a Cuban author. Um, so uh, so there are these texts that exist out there that um, normally when there's an interesting text that, that some intellectual has written, you know, sometimes they'll get invited on, on talk shows and sometimes... Uh, there'll be a highlighted piece in, in the New Yorker or in the New York Times or something like that. It doesn't get done for uh, Latina intellectuals. It just doesn't get done. No one's promoting them um, for some reason in larger circles. They're promoted within Latino circles, but not in larger circles. And and that's very disconcerting for me because what ends up happening is that everyone is just looking at the images of Latinas in the media um, so they all think that we're either poor and, uh, you know, struggling in some way because that's what gets depicted on TV shows, or they think that we are, um, 
suffering incredibly because we just crossed the border, which many of us are, and that should be pay attention to, but that's not all of our experience. Or they think that, you know, we are uh, dancing on a piano like J-Lo and hey, we may want to dance like a piano on a piano like J-Lo. That sounds like a lot of fun. However, that's not that's not the only imagery that we should have. Um, there shouldn't be a single story, as Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie says. Mm. Um, so, uh, so that's that. I started to realize in academia that that was extremely frustrating for me because I, I saw how people were seeing me, how they were looking at really my body in a certain way. Um, that other professors, even if they have the same body, do not get looked at uh, in that way. I, I, I hope that was grammatically correct. But anyway, the operative thing is that they were looking at me physically and thinking one thing, connecting that to, you know, like uh, the image of Rosie Perez and do the right thing instead of, um, you know, connecting me to uh Sheri Moraga marching <laughs> you know mm. they just they weren't they weren't connecting me to the right context um in the classroom and I'm not just saying my students the students yeah sometimes sometimes the students would see me as an auntie which is a little bit more acceptable but <laughs> um you know but but a lot of times it's my colleagues who they just can't imagine that someone who looks like me has had the intellectual life that I've had. They just can't imagine that. They can't, it's just not there. Um, and it really, really hurt me. Mm. Uh, I mean, that just, that, 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 I don't like it when people work on assumptions. I like it when people are just as curious as I am. When I meet someone, I ask them all kinds of questions because I want to find out who they are. Like res respectful questions, but questions nonetheless. Um, and I found that a lot of people were not asking me questions when they met me. In fact, a lot of times they weren't talking to me at all yeah. in, in professional settings. They just were making assumptions. So I found that I, I really had to start. And I, I, I'm a little bit shy in, in certain settings initially. But I realized I have to start saying everything that I do all the time for people to to realize this, but I shouldn't have to do all of that work when other people aren't necessarily putting their resume in everyone's hand. Yeah. When they, you know, other people were getting more respect just by existing again in the room with a different kind of, you know, physical presence. So I, I, I wrote that piece pretty upset, <laughs> pretty upset. And, and what made me happy though, is that in the piece, I started saying, well, you know, we have to start looking at some of these people who are already in the media as intellectuals. Salma Hayek, for example, she brought Frida Kahlo to the world. Like, I think Latinos always knew about Frida Kahlo, but now, like, she's just the norm for the, the Latina artist in terms of people's consciousness right now. There are many other Latina artists, by the way, but... Um, you know, I, I said, we have to stop looking at Salma Hayek as just, you know, the, the sex heartthrob or whatever, um, and see that she's actually done certain things in order to promote an intellectual community um, within, the, within the Latino context. 
I, I said that we had to start looking at um, America Ferrara that way. And lo and behold, I think like one or two years later, wasn't she speaking at um, the women's rally, the women's yeah. march? Yeah, she's definitely taken on more of a, a, a an activist role, I think. Yes. Yeah, so, so I'm really, really happy that, you know, I don't know if I called it into existence, but, <laughs> but I'm just happy that that connection was made and that people have started to, um, to see Latinas in a slightly different light. We have Ocasio-Cortez, who's, you know, uh, an incredible uh, touchstone for people as well. And, and we have um, um, ay, 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 Supreme Court Justice uh, Sotomayor. So I think that we're starting to have a few more people who we can look to, but there can be many, many more. Yeah, because there are so many that just aren't given the same promotion, right? They need to be able to see us at the front of the classroom and immediately know that we have something to offer. They don't see us that way yet. Mm. They don't see us that way. I often get confused. I'm, I'm, I'm just shy of 48 years old. I often get confused to this day for being a student, and it is not because I look young anymore. They can't say that, okay? It's <laughs> it's just not the truth. Mm. It's because they see brown women as students only, not as professors, okay? That is where that is coming from, and, and people need to recognize that. Mm. I feel like it's a good segue to talk about your new book, Latina Outsiders, Remaking Latina Identity, right? It just came out uh, a couple weeks ago, right? Um, well, you know, it's it's been rolled out in, in uh, a, a, a few different ways. Um, so I think it was available in Europe first, because it's Rutledge. So uh, it was available in Europe first, then it was available and and uh, only the ebook and that it was available here. And then I think finally, um, on the 22nd of last month of May, uh, it, it came out officially where you could order the book and everything. And it's, I'm, I'm super proud of this anthology. I was very nervous at first. I, I, I kept asking myself, Oh my God, is it good enough? Are people going to criticize? I'm, I'm past that. Yeah. I'm just so <laughs> happy Good. that I was able to share the voices of over 30 contributors, most of them Latinas. There are some uh, people who don't necessarily identify as, as uh, female or, or Latina culturally. Um, so we have a variety of contributors, but the majority are Latina contributors. Um, and uh, we have queer contributors. Uh, we have Afro-Latina contributors. We have indigenous Latina contributors. We have a really wonderful spectrum of women who have contributed articles, um, fiction, creative nonfiction, testimonio, poetry, and visual art. So there's a little bit of everything for, for everyone in there. And it's all from the Latina outsider perspective. So that perspective is really something that I've already talked about that was kind of born in Logan Square when um, 
when I was trying to figure out my path, even though I had so many different influences, I mean, my mom is Cuban, my dad's Colombian, my mom is, uh, I would say she's white passing, but she is clearly mixed, So, and she identifies as mixed race. Um, my father is Afro-Indigenous Latino. Um, I identify as an Afro-Latina because I, I feel like that is the, the part of my racial mixture that, that I need to acknowledge the most because my father um, was discriminated against uh, by my grandfather initially. Eventually, the family came to welcome him, but I feel like I need to uh, promote my Afro-Latinidad. Um, it was the way that a lot of people saw me as I was growing up. So I want to embrace that. But that said, um, because of these different uh, intersections that I embody, um, I always felt like I was sort of inside, but always outside. I, I could relate to so many things, but sometimes people didn't want to f to fully include me. And I feel like the women in this anthology also have similar perspectives. There are Latinas writing about um, how they are treated for being differently abled. Um, there are Latinas writing about being part of the ska movement. Um, there are Latinas uh, who just intellectually have a different perspective. Uh, Marina Gutierrez, who is the director of the Saturday program at Cooper Union in New York, she has these really, I would say, bordering on abstract. Some of them are fully abstract, but others are, are bordering um, abstract visual art pieces. One of them is a sculpture that's uh, on Lexington in Spanish Harlem that really show just the idea of thinking in a way that other people wouldn't even have the imagination. They, they just, their imagination doesn't work that way. She's unique in her perspective. So a lot of times that can be, uh, make one feel kind of outside, but I find that these outside perspectives, if you take them together, you realize they, they're actually shaping the way in which we're going in terms of the culture. Like these Latinas are representing these perspectives that are very different, but that are letting everyone know, hey, this is where the culture's going. This is the direction that we're headed in. So take a look, enjoy, and get ready for the ride. Mm. Yeah. I love that you've taken that idea of being an outsider and in editing this anthology, you've just put together this beautiful show of strength, like how that can be a strength to be a little bit outside. Um, and it, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because I, I find it so fascinating how like with all of these different layers of identities that you have, like you can be in so many different groups and you have really like you have really engaged so deeply in so many different communities and yet you can never quite be all in on any one of them, right? Um, yes. Especially by other people's 
standards. And just like you said, by the sheer fact of being a Latina, people are going to think, look at you as an outsider. Um, Yes. And, and there's something that I, I could see that being isolating and frustrating and upsetting at times, especially when you're younger, but then like, here it is like it's also such a beautiful strength to be able to be like yeah you can't pin me down like you can't just slap one label on me um and it really I think like a lot of people can a lot of people feel like they have all these different sides to them and everything but when you are like a straight white person in this country like you can get away with just slapping a label on yourself as like one thing you know right um and that'll get you some group safety I guess but it's also like a loss well yeah I mean here's here's the way that I see it so I thought growing up I had a professor who ended up being on my dissertation committee um who the first day he came into the classroom he was all tattooed up And I thought, oh, that's great. That means that I can do that. And Mm. as I got older, I realized, oh, it's not going to be the same for me because I'm Latina and this professor was a white male. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to do it anyway. And let's see where that takes me. And what ends up happening if you have this outsider perspective is that even though you are in all of these worlds, you have all these intersections, because you're not 100% fully in any of them, you're not afraid of looking at each of those uh, spaces that you inhabit, that inhabit you. You're not afraid of looking at them and reflecting on Mm. what works and what doesn't work. Right, like you can question, you can criticize, right? And it doesn't hurt. Right. Like I can look at growing up in the house community and question um, colorism within the house community or question um, how queer folk were treated in the house community or how women were treated in the house community. I can do the same thing with the punk community. I can question the sexism and the the, the factions of punk that um, – that were actually very inclusive, like Afropunk, and the ones that were very uh, fascist, like like Nazi punks, who we don't like. We don't like any of those, as, as the Dead Kennedy song says. Um, so because I had this outsider perspective, I was able to, to take the good, but then say, hey, we, we want this stuff. We want all of the activism and, and the, the questioning that comes with being uh, a punk, but we don't want any of that sexism and we don't want the violence that some punk spaces had. Like it's perfectly fine to slam dance if you're not truly hurting anybody and you're just bumping against each other. But once you start punching each other, no way. That's, that's what we were fighting against to begin with. Yeah. You know, so, so, I, I I appreciate the outsider perspective. I think that that again, it's it's uh, it's the space that allows us to experiment and move forward. Yeah, that's so well said. I love that. 
I would love to know for a woman who maybe needs a little like maybe needs to get in touch with her anger a little bit. What oh awesome. what what is a punk album that you would recommend? Like preferably maybe a female punk band or something. I already thought of it. Okay, <laughs> it's not it's not a fully a uh, female punk band. Um, the the lead singer is is female, but and she's passed away. Um, but X Ray Specs and the lead singer is Polystyrene, and uh, the first ad uh, album Adolescence. Uh, I'm I'm not saying the title fully correct. Uh, the 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 full title correctly i don't think but but uh but um yes anyway look up x-ray specs <laughs> and their song uh identity um yeah there's plenty there's plenty she's yeah. she's a wonderful lyricist and her voice will definitely get you going the other person i have to tell you about is alice bag and her current album which just came out i want to say last year she is the for me, the cornerstone of Latina Outsiders remaking Latina Identity, um, because the the article that this all started with uh, examines her, um, uh, April Ludgate on um, Parks and Rec, yeah, and um, the Lola character in the Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde, who shaves her head at one point. Um, so I, I discuss these these different actual people or characters um, in the context of their outsider status. And Alice Bag is a living example of a Latina outsider who, I mean, she has stayed true to that vision and she's she has fully manifested herself as an incredible activist. Her lyrics in her current album Blueprint, are amazing. Every song has such incredible relevance. She talks about um, how women get paid 77 cents on the dollar. And I think it's gotten a little bit higher, but not necessarily for Latinas. Um, she, she writes about consent, uh, you know, in, in um, a relationship. Um, she has lyrics that, uh, refer to um, an older woman's right to look however she wants to look. Uh, there's a song that she has that's called Secre Joven, which means she thinks she's young. That's the translation. And it's about Latina women criticizing another Latina for dressing in a way that they think is inappropriate. And they're saying she thinks she's young. And the, the chorus... Um, says that woman is me uh i'm gonna dress the way that i want because that's the way that i feel good and it's in spanish it sounds much nicer but <laughs> but it's the every song for me is an anthem of hope and power and i think that you'll love it awesome. and i think shirley shirley manson is her name the the woman from garbage she she mm. uh she guests in uh the video for 77 and you may also want to look up Kathleen Hanna. Yeah. I'm excited. So you have, you have <laughs> a few groups, a few groups that you'll like. So I'm curious, like, I'm sure you've gotten looks or comments or questions or criticism from all around, like, right, from all different 
from all different types of people about the fact that you can't be pigeonholed, right? <laughs> like I'm assuming there there are people in like the Latino community who maybe don't understand all of you. Is that what that they be don't. fair to say? Yeah, they don't. Um, I think that the people who know me love me the yeah. way that they that I am. Like they wouldn't have me any other way. Um, I think that when people first meet me, they they may not understand where I'm coming from. Uh, you know, I I look very different in different environments. When I'm at work, um, I generally dress very down. Uh, I'm an all black or something, and you know, I don't really put out there um, much other than what I'm saying. I want people to focus on what I'm saying. Um, however, when they see me in other contexts, then they might get a little bit confused um, because I obviously have a vivacious way of presenting myself. I have a sense of humor about it. Um, and I think that people get confused when they see the petite framed woman and they hear the things that she says. And, and I don't like talking about myself in the third person. Um, <laughs> but um, but I, I think that people, sometimes they're a little weirded out. But for the most part, um, no one has ever said anything to my face. I think mm. that, I yeah, I think that as an adult, um, there's something about the way that I present myself that no one would ever say anything to my face. They just don't. <laughs> but I hear what they say through other people later, mm. you know? And I think that um, what ends up happening is some people, they're either really down with who I am or some people, they they just, they have something that they feel they can't trust. Mm. And it's because they cannot categorize me. And, you know, I, I, I'm not going to change. It's who I am. Um, I know that if I just gave them one facet of myself in a consistent way, then they would feel like they could trust me, you know, and they would feel like, oh, this is a regular colleague that I can, you know, uh, feel comfortable with. Um, some people are just not ever going to feel comfortable with me because mm -hmm. they cannot categorize me. They just can't. They want to know what to expect, right? <laughs> Yeah, they want to know what to expect. They want to know, um, I guess even politically, they want to know that I am going to answer a certain way, that I'm mm. going to have certain allegiances, and I don't. Mm. I'm very, uh, I'm critical of all kinds of things, and I really try to look at all of the facts and make my decision based on that. I don't, I don't, uh, I'm not tied to a political mythology. I just, that mm. I don't believe in that. I think the world is much more complicated than that. Yeah, and that's a tough way to be too because especially in the age of like, of, I don't know, I just think especially with the internet and social media where it's so easy to just quickly kind of jump in a camp and like, um and publicize exactly what you think about everything exactly when it happens like <laughs> um it's it's a different stance to like to approach things that way um I find it very risky to do that um I find it re very risky to 
to just jump into yeah. uh, a statement when when oftentimes we're we're getting information from another source. We don't have it firsthand. I I need to see that information is consistent over time to to make a judgment. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wish more people did that. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. <laughs> so where do you find your your basic sense, your fundamental like inner sense of belonging or safety or okayness? Where do you derive that from? Mm. Well, That's a complicated question. I think that I derive okayness from a variety of sources. So the first is my relationship with myself. Um, I, I make sure to listen to what I am feeling, to listen to how others make me feel, um, and to listen to how I react to actions that I take. Um, so I have a very elaborate relationship with everything that I process. I make sure to listen to that. Um, secondly, I, I have a wonderful partner and he and I understand each other very, very well. Um, we share everything, we are honest, and we have total respect for each other as human beings, as artists, and we love to laugh. We just make sure that we are laughing every day. So we care for each other in that way. And I think that it's important to have that, if not with a partner, with definitely family or friends, you have to have a community that's close in some way. Um, and then the rest is art, art, writing. I derive so much pleasure from reading, painting, listening to music, writing, revising, 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 all of it. It's, it's my world and I would go crazy without it. So that's, that's, that's where I get my okayness. I guess that's fairly simple. You know, I think a lot of people would have a similar answer. It's really beautiful. And, and, and the way that you can articulate it, I think, is really helpful. I try. <laughs> Are there specific practices that you, that help you to tune in with yourself and check in with yourself? Like, set, um, maybe it is through your art, but are there things like, journaling or you know are there specific things you do to kind of help help with that listening hmm. well um I have to say that uh and this is going to sound a little hokey but every now and then I do really have to have a good cry oh yeah so there's going to be something that 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 bothers me in the world honestly the ultimate outsider status, these poor children yeah. who are being treated so terribly at the border. I've uh, cried a lot about that. And, and now is time for action. 
So I know that there's going to be a visual. Um, I'm going to, I'm forgetting the, the, the title of it. Uh, but there is a visual in July that's going to be, uh, I think worldwide. So I'm definitely going to be a part of that, but I hope that there's something else that we can do. Um, I think that activism can be a practice, whether it is uh, setting up events um, to bring light to these issues. Uh, I think there, for this particular issue, there has to be something more. And I, yeah. I really am, I'm ready to do something more. And I, I, I'm not sure what that is yet, but I am really, really for this issue, I'm ready to do something more because uh, I, I, that is in my body right now and mm. it's not leaving and I feel it every day. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to forget those children. So, um, you know, there's that, but, uh, I think the main practice I would say is, is the writing. It is, I mean, sometimes it takes the form of journaling, but sometimes it takes the form of, of whatever kind of writing I'm doing, whether it's an essay, whether it's short fiction, um, I have, you know, sci-fi coming out in the Latinx archives very oh, cool. soon. So I'm looking forward to that being, uh, it's an, a two volume anthology with lots of different, um, Latino sci-fi writers. Um, I, uh, I like to sing. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think it's really the arts. It's the arts for me. That's, that's really what centers me more than anything. It always has been since I was a kid. Yeah. What is something that you are learning about or growing into right now? You know, and I find that this is probably a little bit late that maybe some of my uh, peers from, from high school who are so accomplished, they're just such amazing people who I grew up with. Um, I'm learning right now to, uh, to accept my role as a leader. I have never really thought of myself that way. I kind of always thought of myself as this solo kind of artist and, and, you know, I hosted and curated poetry readings and stuff, but I never really saw that as leadership. And of course I've been an educator for quite some time, but I always saw the real leader as like the department chair or something like that. Um, but I, I saw myself as a leader on a small scale, right? But now I'm starting to realize, oh, I'm, I'm actually being a leader in these other ways. And there's nothing wrong with accepting that role. And I think even saying that out loud is, is a little bit surprising because obviously that's the role that I've been growing into. But... I just kind of always saw myself as that lone punk. Yeah. You know, and 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 now I'm seeing with the anthology, with with different things that are going on in my life, especially um, taking care of my parents and 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 my role in in helping facilitate the the memorials. I just I realized, oh, I'm I'm I've grown into this other role, and and I'm okay with that. It's it's nice that I've been able to do that. You know, I feel very blessed and lucky to, to have had that honor so far. So, so that's, that's something that I'm learning about. Yeah. And that feels so full circle because we started out talking about your parents and like your dad being such a leader 
And oh God. It's like you, you know, it sounds like you are your, your father's daughter. Like you maybe because he was such a big presence it, or he, it sounds like he was such a, such a classic leader personality that um, maybe you didn't see yourself in that way, but it's beautiful that, that you can see it and embrace it now and like step into it. That's, that's kind of, yeah, I, I, I like the way that you phrased that. I do think that he did have a very, very big personality. I mean, we loved it. He had so many people who adored him. And I think that maybe because of that, you know, I just kind of never thought of myself that way. Absolutely. Um, but I guess the torch has uh, been passed mm. in some ways. Mm. Hmm. Oh, you're going to make me cry. <laughs> I mean, it's beautiful. Tears and of joy. Tears of joy. Yeah, it's so... Everything that you've shared is just so inspiring to me. Like, I'm listening. I'm I'm excited already to re-listen to the conversation. <laughs> um, oh, thank you. Because, yeah, I just think that um, you clearly are quite a leader just by being yourself so mm. yeah. yes leaders should be able to be themselves and be human not yeah. perfect just themselves absolutely have you read um the book emergent strategy by adrian marie brown no i have not um i'm reading it right now and it's you might find it interesting because it's um, she's a Detroit-based social justice activist and community organizer, and she's done a ton of work in those realms. And this book is kind of all about new approaches to social movements and social justice and a more feminine and spiritual approach and like kind of shifting away from the more patriarchal and you know, white dominant culture ways of leading organizations and leading movements and, and creating change. And it's a really beautiful book. And I just feel like maybe you would like it. <laughs> oh, that sounds great. Yes, I'm definitely going to look that up. Ah, yeah, this has been great. I'm so excited to, to listen and edit it and then post it. This has been a total pleasure. And thank you so much for having me. Thank, thank you for you. this conversation. Oh, thank you. Before we hang up, um, where can people find you and your work? Where should they look? Um, they can go to uh, grito.org. Um, yeah, yeah, that's that's the probably the best place. I have to update the website, but that's the best place, grito.org. And the name of the book is? Latina to... Outsiders, Remaking Latina Identity. Okay. So especially if, if there are any... If there are any professors or educators listening, yes. right? Yeah, they, they, yes. So they can order um, it for their libraries, the academic volume, or they can get the ebook. The paperback will be out in a year. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Perennials Podcast. I'm Victoria Russell. 
If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or leave a review on iTunes. It really helps other people to find the show. You can follow along on Instagram at Perennials Podcast and feel free to send me an email at perennialspodcast at gmail.com. The song you're hearing now is I Orbit a Moon by Paul Finn.